The Civil Engineering Podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network, which can be found at cement.media. That's cement, C-E-M-E-N-T dot media. Welcome to episode number 184 of the Civil Engineering Podcast, the first podcast dedicated to helping civil engineering professionals succeed in work and life. I'm your host, Anthony Fasano. I'm a civil engineer by background, but I've transitioned my career to focus on helping engineering professionals become better managers and leaders through content, coaching, and training. In this episode of the Civil Engineering Podcast, this is part of our Women in Civil Engineering series, and I'm excited that I got the chance to talk to Elliot Twig, licensed professional engineer and local agency manager for Consor Engineers. Elia was awesome. She talked about her career in both the public and private sectors. And really, we talked about her management training, which was essentially being hired into a job in the public sector where she had to manage over 20 professionals and she had zero management experience leading up to that. So talk about, you know, being thrown into the fire. But really, she talks about how she used that experience to become a better engineer and a better manager. And really, she gave a lot of good examples in this podcast episode. She also gave some great books in the hot seat segment at the end that I'm already (laughs) reading that I hadn't heard of, and I'm really excited to share them with you as well. Now, before we dive into this episode, I do want to just mention that we have our fall training courses getting started soon, our Engineering Leadership Accelerator, our People Skills course in our project management accelerator, our PM skills course. We've also been doing a lot of custom training programs around these curriculums for corporations out there that are practicing engineering that want to get their engineers better at these skill sets. In fact, we've been designing some hybrid programs where we combine people skills and PM skills based on that company's needs. So if you're interested in any of these training courses for yourself or for your company, you can check them out at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. Or you can call us at 800-920-4007. That's 800-920-4007. All right, now let's dive into our Civil Engineering Conversation of the Week with Elliot Twig. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. All right, now I'd like to welcome on our guest to the podcast today. Elliot Twig is the local agency manager at Consor. She also works on internal development programs at Consor, which is certainly exciting to me. Elia, welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast. Thank you for having me. We were lucky to have the chance to meet actually not long ago as well in person when I was traveling because we're talking about doing some training together and got to talking a little bit about your career and you know, you coming on the podcast and talking about public sector, private sector. So before we kind of jump into the topic, tell us a little bit more about yourself, where you located, what is it that you do on a daily basis at Consor? I work remotely. I work from home, uh, but I live in the Melbourne, Florida area. I've been married for 20 years and have two kids, one that's 11. Uh, my girl, that's her name is Liana, and my son, Porter, uh, is 13. I have a bachelor's and master's degree in civil engineering, so I definitely uh, like it. From the University of Florida, go Gators. <laughs> I started uh, my career in design. I Actually, from the high school age even, I really wanted to always develop subdivisions. So I started my career doing design and then uh, designing subdivisions and designing site plans and then moved from there onto the public sector. And that's where I went to work at the city of Palm Bay. And I was there for 10 years in various management positions. Uh, The last three and a half years, I was the public works director. 
And then I moved on to Target Engineering Group, which is now Consor. Consor was a merge of four companies together. So we're a new company, a couple of years old. But now I've been with Consor for uh, six years. At the city, I you know just had progressive management experience from there. But then now at Consor, I started out doing construction engineering services. All of our clients are public sector clients. We have a CEI group, which is construction engineering and inspection group that uh, basically administers the construction projects for local agencies or for the DOT or other public entities. So I started out as senior project engineer and uh, doing construction projects. And now my role has sort of morphed into doing like you um, introduced me with the development programs. I've got the project manager program that we are developing. And that's more on like how Consor does things, but also development for up and coming project managers or project managers that might just come into our organization that may have experience in other places, but with ways of how Consor operates. So that's the project manager. And then we also have an emerging leader program that we are looking at doing that will have an emerging leader group within our company and to try and develop emerging leaders for future growth for them. It's great that you had a lot of vision into wanting to become an engineer all the way in high school, you know, working on subdivisions. I think that that's not always common. And a lot of times people struggle trying to figure out, you know, what direction they want to go. So it's interesting to hear that. And, you know, you had some really big jobs in terms of the public sector, public works, a lot of responsibility, which is, I'm sure was a great learning experience, which we can certainly dive into. But it also seems like it's very beneficial to what you're doing today to be able to communicate with these professionals that are in government. Since you've been there, you understand what they're thinking, you've understand what they're gone through, which is excellent. But let's talk first about how your first transition of how you went from private sector initially in your career to public sector. What kind of spurred on that decision and that transition? Because I'm sure some of our listeners are thinking about that. It was a small engineering company here in the Melbourne area, and we were the engineers that would do everything on the project. So uh, whereas some of the bit larger companies, they might have you sectioned into like just being doing the drainage or just doing the roadway design. In this case, I was doing all the work in like a subdivision design or all the work for site layout. And it was always under the direction of an engineer because I didn't have my TE license at the time. But I just started thinking like, you know, I really needed to have like a little change. I wanted to just change really what I was doing. I really liked it, but there was just in the environment, work environment, some things that I really felt like it was time for me to move on. I was doing an inspection on one of our projects and a city uh, inspector was at the project and he just mentioned to me, hey, you know, so-and-so, which I, I knew who she was. She was a city engineer at the time for that agency was leaving or was actually going and being promoted to a different position and her position was becoming available. It just sparked that interest in me of like, you know, maybe I should consider looking at something else. And I did a little research. I talked to some friends that knew of the circle of friends that I had in my network. And then my friend actually told me about a position at the city of Palm Bay that her husband worked there and he was hiring uh, somebody. So the position at the other agency, you needed to have a PE license and I didn't have it yet. So anyways, I went to interview at the city of Palm Bay and interviewed with my friend's husband. And 
I think they were even hesitant to hire me because they really weren't sure what was going on, even though my friend was a good resource. And and I think that was a good connection there. But it was just, I was a young person coming into the agency and into a management role that I've never managed people before. (laughs) But they took the chance. I came in as a rideway services manager, had 27 people that I managed and came into a huge, crazy project where we were really, really behind in driveway permits. Basically, we came up with a plan, executed the plan, changed it around, and then we were doing fine with the permits. So I think that there was a lot of credibility I earned in that first year, just being able to turn that program around from where it was. And then I stayed at the city for 10 years. What's really interesting to me about that is a lot of big challenge that I see many younger engineers struggle with is confidence. And so for you to be able to go into, first of all, it's a big transition in itself to go from the private sector into the public sector, first time, you know, working in the public sector. Secondly, you've got a lot of people you got to manage with not a lot of management experience. That's a big challenge. I don't know if this was a factor, but I know my wife is a civil engineer and I know she works in municipality. And for her, even like being a female in the municipality was something that was different because there wasn't a lot of female engineers when she went there. So I could just imagine there are a lot of hurdles in that transition that you made. This one was really big because I held a meeting because I just needed to have a meeting with all the home builders. I mean, I'm 25 years old. There's 50 home builders in this meeting. I'm this little petite, five foot one. 25-year-old telling him, I know you're you're really behind in your permit, but we're going to change it. And these are the things that we're going to do. And just doing those changes, it started getting that credibility, I guess, for me and for our city that we were turning things around for them. So yeah, that was a little scary. (laughs) How did you navigate that? And how did you build the confidence in yourself to attack that position, basically, the way you did? I'm always somebody to make things happen and I don't sit and wait for things to happen. I just make them happen. So took a lot of, you know, guidance from my supervisor, guidance from our public works director, and then also just coming up with the ideas, taking input from the staff that was there and just coming up with a plan and sticking with it. And if things didn't work, then we would just move on to something different, you know, change it up a little bit. But for the most part, I mean, we came up with that plan and I got the input from the staff and I think just getting that buy-in from the people that were involved. But, you know, the first thing I did, I asked them how many permits we were behind and they had no idea. So I saw a pile of permits and I just pulled the chair out and I sat down and I just started counting them. And they were looking at me like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I have to know what our problem, we have to have a starting point. They had no idea, but no one took the time to count it. And I think with them seeing me pull out the chair right then and there, pull out the chair and started counting. I mean, we were really far behind and no one wanted to take the time to to count that. But I mean, it was important information to know. You were kind of fearless. Like you just took action. I just took action. I had to, (laughs) I didn't have a choice. At least that's what I felt. I didn't have a choice. I just took the action and, but we really turned it around. I mean, it, it took a little bit of time, but we were really far behind. You took that step. You got into that job. One of the things we focus a lot on at EMI and through our podcast, of course, is developing one's leadership skills, whether it's project management skills, people management and leadership skills. And it sounds like you really had a crash course on it. You just got thrown into it. So my question to you is, because I'm sure that there are a lot of engineers listening that are thinking, I want to go do this job, but I don't have any management experience. Well, obviously that didn't stop you. So 
How did you learn? Was it just on the job learning essentially for you? On the job learning. Yeah. There's two parts, I think, to management and leadership. I think part of it is just part of who you are. It might just be part of your personality. The other part is be open to learning. Like I'm a learning nerd. I mean, I'm constantly reading. I'm constantly listening to things and just trying to learn more and more. So I was like a sponge and I really wasn't afraid to ask somebody for help. Even if it was my staff, like part of my team, I would ask them for help, help ask them for their guidance. But I think it was just a matter of doing it and learning what worked and didn't work and moving on from there. (laughs) And I'm not one to really get disappointed if it didn't work. Okay, that's fine. Let's go on to something else and find something that will work. And I just kind of a go-getter that way. There are definitely like a couple of sides to becoming a good manager and leader. One of them is like your general disposition in terms of how outgoing you are, how fearless you are, your willingness to take risks, which it sounds like you were like, just put me in, I'm going to go for it type of thing. But at the same time, for those of you that aren't like that, I mean, you can still develop skills. I think that there's another side of it. I just think it'd be harder for you a little bit because you're going to have to work harder at developing some of those skills and pushing yourself to try things that are more uncomfortable for you. I would encourage you to try to do that and try to build some skills. Another thing that I found to be helpful in my own experience is if you're nervous about leadership or leading people, really understand the content of of your leading, the technical content, the guidelines, the regulations. Because I found myself in just learning things, you build confidence. If you feel more comfortable going in front of someone and saying, hey, this is what we need to do this project, because I know that from researching it. It'll make you a little bit more comfortable in trying to get out in front of people and leading people. It's never an easy thing to do, but you know, obviously, Elia had to kind of jump into this. So that being said, you did that job and you eventually made your way into the director of public works position. Now, that's a big position with a lot of responsibilities, a lot of interaction with people. Talk about that transition, how that came about, how you got into that. At the time, we had our public works director left. So there was a transition with our city manager. Like it was kind of a weird time. There was a few people, key people in our city that was leaving at the same time, just by chance. It was a coincidence. And uh, so our city manager changed and she needed a deputy city manager and the public works director moved. So we needed a public works director. And I thought the assistant director was going to become the public works director and that I would transition in to be the assistant. And uh, he ended up going and becoming the deputy city manager. So there was no one leading public works. Our city manager moved another director from a different department over, and then he became the city public works director. And I moved over to our city hall and managed big capital projects that we had going on in the city. But he lasted, he was only there for six months. And as soon as I got an email that he was leaving and he was moving to a different city, I immediately emailed my city manager and said, I'm interested. We had a talk. I mean, I guess it was somewhat of an interview. I'm not sure. I I was already working under her for that six months, directly under her. So I think she saw more of maybe my capabilities. And then we came to an agreement and, and I became the public works director then. So it was pretty crazy. I mean, I was really young, <laughs> but it was a fun job. I really loved it. How old were you? Do you remember at that time? Maybe early 30s, so 32-ish. So you so you spent some time, like it was in public work. It was a good number of years, probably. Yeah, I was there for seven years or six and a half years, actually, because the last three and a half is when I was public works director. 
Sticking on this topic for a minute, we're working our way back to the private sector. I want to hear how some of these skills help you. But before we leave the public sector, I know for those out there that are interested in the public sector or working in the public sector and they want to continue to grow their careers there, I want to ask you about politics. How do politics affect these top-level management positions in the public sector. I know that, for example, somebody could get hired, fired in local government just because of a change in council, commission, someone got voted in. Talk about that, like what people should know of about that and how you need to prepare for something like that. Working in the public works departments or just any agency, city or county type of job, politics is always going to be there. I'm not very good at managing politics. It was very difficult for me to manage the politics, but I did it, you know, for the three and a half years that I was the director, because that's really the biggest exposure. When you're a director or above, you really are a lot more exposed. But our city council changed. And normally when a city council changes, if there's any leaving of staff, it's typically the city manager is like the first one to go because the council comes in, they come in all like hot and heavy of wanting to, you know, make some changes. And the first change they think they need to make is that the city manager needs to go. In that case, our city manager was, they were going to bring up her contract in next meeting. There was no reason for it. She was doing an amazing job. We went from a point in time where it was really tough financially with our city, but it was just the city government changed and that's what made the changes. So she was the first one. She left, you know, saw the writing on the walls, left on her own. and then. From that point, it just started trickling. They brought in their own city manager. There was a lot of different things that went on during this whole process. But then our deputy city manager decided, I'm not staying with this new regime coming in. So then a new deputy city manager came in and then things just started going. And I really did not like the direction it was going. I felt like there was going to be a lot of, let's just say the prediction that I had was that somebody was going to go to jail. And I was not wrong because <laughs> it did actually happen a few years later. But, you know, that's not the work environment that I am going to thrive in. And I know that they knew that of me as well. And there were the time that all these leaders started getting asked to leave with a separation agreement. And there was absolutely nothing, again, wrong with performance, but it was just the new Uh, leadership wanted their changes. And so they did give me a separation agreement that had no benefit to me to sign it. So I opted not to sign it. And they really didn't know. I was the only one out of the 13 or however many people they gave it to that did not sign the agreement. I think that was their way of saying, I have no idea how to deal with somebody that doesn't sign the agreement because everyone else signed it. I knew that I was thinking, well, they're just going to give me a severance or something to get me to leave on another note. And they ended up calling me back from my administrative leave that they put me on and they called me back. So I knew they're going to just find if I don't cross that T, they're going to fire me over that. So I knew that. So I just figured, well, I'm going to continue to get my paycheck. I'm going to continue to leave my department until I could find work elsewhere. And the timing was kind of crazy because as soon as I found my employer, which was Target Engineering Group, um, uh, that's when they decided to, that I made the one little mistake that they (laughs) said that I made. And uh, it was the same week. So it was just, the timing was just crazy. But 
it was very liberating as well that I was out of that situation. So the one lesson I guess out of this is especially for those people that might be looking for the public sector work or looking to hire somebody that maybe has been in that similar type of position, politics can play ugly games. And sometimes it's not performance-based. You know, sometimes it might be, but a lot of times it might not be. And especially if they're a city manager position or director position, look into those situations. If you're planning to hire somebody that might have been let go from an agency, because it may not be anything to do with their performance. And I think that a lot of people don't see that or may not realize that because as soon as you see that somebody's been fired, the red flags start going up. Sometimes it's not really a red flag at all. It's just the way the environment is for local government. And that's not to scare anybody from doing it. I would have to say that that public works director job was so rewarding in so many different ways. And I absolutely loved it. It was an an amazing job, an amazing role. And I had so many different things that I was able to do with that position. And I had an awesome team. I mean, there's so many awesome things that happened with that position, but it just was my time to leave and it's fine. I think it's part of the government job, potentially dealing with those politics. And the unfortunate part of all of that is that it has, I think, created some not so great stereotypes for government workers in general. You know, people say they're lazy, they don't want to work hard, and it's not the case. I mean, you're stereotyping. You could probably have people like that in both worlds, but look at someone like yourself that got in there, rolled up your sleeves at 25 years old and really did well. And yet from the outside, people are still thinking, oh, if you want to be lazy, go work for the government. That's not a good thing. Yeah. And I experienced actually something funny about that, that we had this referendum that we were trying to um, get through for a road program. So a few of us like directors and or actually at the time I was a manager, upper level managers went out in the field with our field guides and just filled potholes with them. And, you know, you get that stereotype that they're city workers or lazy or whatever. Well, we were literally leaning on a shovel that day because we were just waiting for the asphalt truck to come. And I started thinking, you know, this is that stereotype that people see, but I see the only reason why we were waiting for the asphalt to come, you know, and we were literally leaning on the shovel. And I started thinking like, well, I'm sure there's some garbage we can pick up. So we just started picking up garbage on the street and just doing things just so we weren't just sitting there waiting for the asphalt to come. But that is a real thing. I mean, people like to wait for the asphalt, but I wouldn't have known that or experienced that if I didn't actually do it in field. So I just think that that's something that people don't realize either. You know, they might have that perception, but it really, our public works team worked hard. I mean, our people were just hard workers. I definitely got that different perspective of city workers. We didn't have that. We had a lot of really awesome people that did awesome work in the city. The other thing that's terrible about the whole politics thing is you end up losing really good employees like yourself from the public sector because of everything that goes on. And then, you know, that's why we have some of these issues that we have. So it's not great, but I agree with you that the experience that sounds like you took away from it was invaluable for you personally, for your career, for your management skills and and all that, which is great. So now you found this job with Target, you got back into the private sector. Now, was your job, I guess your job still is and was in some way relating with public agencies and public employees. Is that accurate? Yes, it is. When you work for a local government, city, county, or even a DOT or something like that, a public agency, you're working for, like I kind of equate it to be like 
you know, in sports, when I was in high school, I was playing high school sports. I was playing for my school. And when you're working at one of these agencies, you're working for the community, working for the people that live there and making their lives better in whatever way. In the private sector, you know, you're working to make money. But in this case, our clients are the public agencies. So I feel that connection still that I have the community is better than it was when our projects came in or when we did designs or when we did our construction administration. I mean, the community is better left when we leave. So I just think that that, even though I'm not working for the public agency directly, I feel like I'm still very connected to that because we are still doing work for the communities that we work in. You're back in the private sector. You're doing that work. One of the things I can say here, just for those of you out there that are interested in public sector or in the public sector right now, because I do a lot of work with private consulting firms in terms of training and I know that there's a tremendous market if you leave the public sector and want to go to the private sector, because obviously for everything that Ellie is saying is that it's valuable to have someone who has the connections, the relationships, but also understands the way the agencies work in order to give you a competitive advantage in terms of working with them, making sure the projects flow smooth, maybe you know being turned on to things that are happening down the road. So that is a career path for you in this world is going to the public sector, then coming to the private sector. And I think the way Elliot did it is even better because you had some private experience first, you went public and you kind of came back. But what would you say in terms of your the biggest difference between the two positions, you know, public and private, now that you've had a chance to really experience both and you've been in both, what would you say are some of the biggest differences between the two that you can offer to someone who's thinking about it? The work environment is different. I mean, especially since I've been working with construction side, we are a smaller group. We're typically like a small construction team, you know, where we'll have inspectors and a project administrator, senior project engineer, a couple other positions that would be part of that team. So it's a lot smaller group, but we usually deal directly with the agency that we're working for. At a public works agency, at least in mine, we had so many different responsibilities, like a lot. I mean, we had, you know, fleet services, surveying, construction, maintenance, engineering. I mean, there were all these different areas. So as far as like how a day goes, even not as a public works director, you might just be managing or working in one of these little areas. There's so many different aspects that go into that where working at Consor, these construction projects, it's just typically the one or two construction projects that you might be on. And there might be some proposals that are coming in or doing some other little miscellaneous things, but your focus is more, and maybe if you're in design, you might be designing several projects, but you're not immersed into such an environment that's got so many different aspects. And one day you've got a plan of doing something. And then the next day council member calls and says, nope, so and so citizen really wants this thing done in their neighborhood. And so then you got to change gears and it's just always very different. What are some specific skill sets that you picked up through some of those public sector jobs, which I know you kind of were thrown into big things that you found that really continue to be helpful in the private side? Well, without a doubt, managing people. I started out going from never managing anybody to managing 27 people. That's a big curve. <laughs> Learning, you know, it's more like a straight up line on managing. And then from there, I had the progressive uh, management of 
75 people and then 120 people. So, I mean, it, it just grew. Your core team, usually the people that direct reports might be smaller, but if you're overall, you know, the whole group, like in this case, it was like 100, over 120 people. But so managing people, for me, when I learned managing people, it's just having direct conversations, learning how to communicate with people. Some people work in different ways and they need a different type of communication. So learning all of those ways to work with your people to get them to do the work that needs to be done. There's some people that are self-motivated and some that need a little bit more of a push. The other things are like the direct conversations that are really hard to have sometimes. I mean, in the public sector, there's usually a process or some steps. So if you have an employee that might not be performing, there might be some rules and regulations that you have to follow where you might have to do a, a verbal warning and then maybe a written warning, and then there might be some other steps involved. And in the private sector, you don't really have that. I mean, or maybe not necessarily. Like if you have somebody that's not performing, I always think, well, talk to them first because there might be something going on in their life. There might be something other, you know, that you just don't understand what's going on. So I always talk to the people. I always had that communication anyways, but there might be something going on. And, and if you start giving them like some objectives to follow and they're not doing it in the private sector, you can help them be successful somewhere else, you know, but in the public sector, you really need to follow process. So I think learning that and following and just being fair and honest and, and really transparent with everything, like those are some really big skills that I learned just with managing people. And I had employees that were there for like over 20 years that when I started managing them, other managers or other supervisors complained of the same things I complained about, but then I go and look in their personnel file and there's nothing there. So, you know, you have to start doing the documentation and having the conversations and it's hard, so hard to do that, but I'm just a person that like, it is better to take care of, give them an opportunity to make a change and have those conversations with them instead of letting it fester and letting it keep going and then having the staff around or people that report to them around seeing you not do anything about whatever is going on. And that's what happened there on a couple of cases, a guy that worked there over 20 years and they had a class action thing that was like with their personnel. This guy's direct reports went straight to HR and did like this. It was like a class action thing. Like there was a union, you know, based thing. I didn't even know all the problems that were going on because none of the staff really came to me to tell me, hey, we're going to be doing this. And then they did it instead of giving me the opportunity to try and fix it. But anyways, I gave the guy a bunch of objectives. Some people will change and say, you know, I need to change. And some people decide they can't change. And so then we had him move on. But I saw him a couple of years later and he gave me a big hug. Like there was no hard feelings over it, I guess, you know, but I think just the way that I learned to handle people and just handle these conversations. And, you know, it was very delicate, but at the same time, I was very firm and direct, but also giving measurable objectives that he just didn't meet. And I was showing it like on the form, you didn't meet this, you didn't meet this deadline. You didn't even come to talk to me because I always said, talk to me if you're going to miss a deadline or if something's going to happen, something comes up. And he never did. So like having those difficult conversations, I, he saw the writing on the wall. He saw what was going to happen. There was nothing secret about it. Again, it's just that managing people was probably the biggest skill that I learned and just having 
working with these people and, and, but then also getting people to do some great things like complimenting or praising people that do great things in public settings where people can see that recognition. One of the skills that a lot of engineers in the private sector don't get to develop until maybe it's too late sometime is like project finance and budget management. I would assume that when you're working in the public sector, when you're working in public works, budget management is of the utmost importance and something that I'm sure you were thrown into like you were thrown into everything else. Talk a little bit about how helpful that was for you in terms of developing as an engineer and eventually going to the private side. For me personally, I've always been like a budgeter setting money aside for certain things or whatever. So I kind of already had that mindset. So going into a city, learning the budget process, the timing of the process, what actually goes into the budget, where the funding comes from. That's an important thing to know, like where the money comes from and having this balanced budget. If you have several different funding sources, you're going to have several different types of budgets because your funding source is going to be managing or uh, funding different parts of the organization. So I had like four different funding sources and then knowing the ins and outs of how that worked within the city and then coming up and developing the budget. So every year we would have our expenditures and track the expenditures and then no, in this area, we didn't really spend this much. Why didn't we really spend that much? You know, we would have budget meetings every month. We would talk about it. So it was always consistently talked about. But, you know, if we didn't spend certain money, we would look at why. And then once we figured that out, we either move that money to somewhere that we spent a little bit more. We're able to like move the money around. Or if there were budget cuts, which that happened quite a bit for us, especially during that time, like knowing where to cut the funding. So that translates into the private sector because I understand what gets in, what's involved with the budget cycles. I understand how the funding comes into play for these budgets. So when it comes time to chasing projects, there might be some federal funds that are going in. So with the federal funds in Florida, at least, I don't know about any other agency or any other state. We have planning organizations, transportation planning organizations that are connected with the state as well. So all these funding, the federal money or state money will go through this organization and then the agencies get their funding. You know, it's all prioritized. So like knowing that process was really important in knowing how to target projects. Just knowing that process and that comes back to the budgeting and knowing where the funding comes from, from the private or from the public sector. I mean, it's obvious that you've learned a lot from your time in the public sector that really has helped you in your engineering career, of course, on a lot of different levels from project-related finance and other project-related management tasks. Also, like you said, the people management, which is, in my opinion, just as important, if not more important than some of the technical and project management stuff. Because if you can't deal with people effectively in our world of engineering, your projects aren't going anywhere. We're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back and we're going to finish up by putting Elia on the civil engineering hot seat. So we'll be right back. Civil engineering podcast. Civil engineering podcast. All right. We are back with Elia Twig, local agency manager at Consor Engineers. And it's time, Elia, to put you on the civil engineering hot seat. Are you ready? I am. Are there any specific rituals that you practice every day? For example, do you have a specific morning routine or a lunchtime routine or just anything that you do consistently on a daily basis that has contributed to your success? I start out with my morning. I wake up early and the first thing I do is move my body in some way. I'm, I'm a health and fitness 
fanatic. So I like to do some sort of workout or, or I bike in the morning. So I go early. I have a friend that's a teacher. So we have to leave really early, like 4.30 in the morning. We're out on our bikes. And sometimes we're doing 30 miles. Sometimes we're doing intervals. Whatever the case is, we're usually up pretty early doing that. But then when I come home, I'll get a good breakfast in. I love cooking and just getting a good breakfast. And then I'll go out on the porch, rain or shine, because we, you know, I live in Florida and it could be hot out still, but I will go out to my porch and I usually bring my breakfast, my coffee, and I start my planning for the day. So I'll look at my five second journal, which is this little book here. And I basically fill out the five second journal and it just kind of sets my day up. And one thing I learned actually from one of your podcasts was that Eisenhower matrix the urgent, not urgent, important, not important. So I started doing that. And that really helps focus my day uh, big time of what I need to do and what I need to tackle first. Once I'm done with that, I get I do a 10 minute meditation usually with an app that I use and then I start working. And usually that's about 8 30, 9 o'clock, I'll start working. And then lunchtime comes around. I'm really big about eating like good lunch as well. And so I'll I work from home, so I'll cook lunch, but I always make sure that spend the time to take a lunch break, because that's one thing that I think a lot of people do. They try and eat at their desk or they'll get something quick to eat. And I think it's really good for your mind to take that little break in the day, even if it's just that one time in the day to take that break. So I really focus on sitting with my lunch and not doing anything that's work related, just having my lunch. And sometimes I'll go like on social media or something, but I usually try and keep it where I'm just like chill, eat my lunch and get that break. And then I get back to work. So when I do that, it like my day usually goes really great. When I don't do it is when I I notice that if I don't have that time to plan, it just kind of screws my day up. Eisenhower Matrix, for those of you out there that want to try to better plan your days, it can really help you in prioritizing tasks. I mean, we all have a million things to do. When it comes to productivity, my philosophy has always been productivity means you're working on the right things. It's not the number of things you get done in a day because you're never going to finish the list of things. It's are you working on the right things? And that can really help you. Do you mind me asking what meditation app do you use? The Calm app. I love that app. I mean, it's something, it's one you pay for, but it's like $60 a year, but it is absolutely amazing. They have a 10 minute daily meditation with two speakers. So I happen to like one versus the other, but two, there's 10 minute meditation, but there's music on there. So I'm always listening to like piano music or whatever while I'm working. They have like some sleep meditations. I mean, it's really awesome app. I Absolutely love that app. That's great. And I asked because I also use an app called Waking Up, which is similar, I think, in terms of daily meditation is 10 minutes. It's about the same price per year. And it was recommended to me by another civil engineer on this podcast in the same segment, but I'm always open to checking out different stuff. So I'm, I'm glad you shared that. All right, Elliot, what's one book that you might recommend to engineers or could just be a book in general that you found to be helpful in your personal or professional development? For personal finances, this is something that helped me tremendously. My husband and I did this, actually it was 13 years ago when I was pregnant with my son. We changed our whole financial plan. It was awesome. And that was Dave Ramsey's Total Money Makeover. It changed everything for us. And it's kind of one of those where 
you live like no one now so you can live like no one later and and it's basically along the line of like you pay cash for things you pay things off it's a snowball thing i mean it's awesome i highly highly recommend that if you need something to help you with personal finances it's like a no debt approach right yeah and it's just amazing power phrases by Meryl Runyon this is the book here buy it on amazon It's basically a reference book. It's not something that you read from cover to cover. But this one was super helpful when I was managing people. Um, There's some sections in there on negotiating, on managing, on communicating. I probably referenced that book like at least a couple times a month. I mean, I was always looking at it and, and it was super helpful, especially when you have a difficult conversation that you need to have with somebody, just putting your mindset to it. That was a really helpful never heard of that book and I've asked hundreds of people. So that's great. Okay. Then Mel Robbins, anything that Mel Robbins touches is gold. So uh, she has the five second rule. She has another book that she's got uh, coming out that's September. Um, She's got several audible books that are only on audible. So you can't get that anywhere else. They're more like an interview style, but she's amazing. I social media, everything about her. She's awesome. I have changed so much about my life and just productivity, everything. In fact, that five second journal is one of her creations. So she's awesome. Highly recommend looking into her, into her content. If you want something to live your life to the fullest, (laughs) Die With Zero by Bill Perkins. I just recently listened to that one. I, I did that as an audible. You know, it's just a different perspective of like dying with zero dollars, which I would imagine would be a hard thing to do. But it's one of those things of like, you know, you're living through experiences and you can make all this money. But if you don't use the money and you don't experience things throughout your time, especially during the gold and during the years that you have the ability to use the money. If you're going to wait till you retire and you don't retire till 70 to travel, well, you might not be able to walk very well. You might have other health issues. So anyways, that was that book. That was a great book. For entrepreneurs out there, The E-Myth Revisited by Michael Gerber. Awesome book. That's one of my favorites for sure. And then for fun, I like fun. The Highlander series or the Fever series by Karen Marie Moaning. My husband's into the fever series. Uh, he and I are actually reading it now at the same time. So it's kind of cool connection between the two of us. But those are really awesome books too. One point on that that you mentioned, which I think is important, and I really subscribe to in terms of the retirement when you're talking about really living the, the one that you gave, Die With Zero. I've heard of the book. I haven't read it, but it reminds me of some of the other books that I've read, like one of my favorite books, which is The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari, which was a similar with this lawyer who had a lot of money. And just by Robin Sharma, he realized like, what the hell am I doing? I can't even spend all this money and I'm kind of missing my whole life. And he changed and he kind of went to live with a bunch of monks like in the mountains and he had a transformation. It was very interesting. And then another one, The 4-Hour Work Week, which is a very popular book by Tim Ferriss, which was his philosophy was you can work a number of hours a week and then take off and start enjoying life a number of hours a week, as opposed to waiting till you're 70, like you said, where people are kind of like, I'm going to work, 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 save all this money. And then I realize that I'm, I'm old and I can't really use it that effectively as I want to. So, Yeah. And then you say you want to leave it to your kids. Well, if you're 70, your kids are probably 50. They probably don't need the money then. You know, They maybe needed it when they were 25 and trying to buy their first house or something like that. 
All right. Thinking back on your managers, Elliot, that you've had in your career, and you don't have to name names specifically, but if you think of like your favorite or some of your favorite managers, what made them your favorite? What was that characteristic or something that they did where you said, wow, this makes me really like this person as a manager? I am not somebody that can be put into a box and micromanage. That is not me at all. If there's a task at hand, just tell me what it is and I'll get it done. But don't micromanage me. I like the check-ins, you know, check-in regularly, whether it's every couple of weeks or whatever, where the feedback is there. I had a case where I had my manager was really upset with me over something we did in in my department. There was a mistake we made. I recognized the mistake. I handled it immediately. My staff, like we took care of it. It was a mistake. We couldn't do any, you can't do anything about a mistake. You could only move forward, right? My manager was super upset (laughs) over it. I mean, it was really bad. So she called me to her office and I just explained to her all the actions that we took to, to avoid making this mistake in the future. Well, then she also had other things to tell me about things that like she had issue with. I'm like, I had no idea. Why didn't you tell me these things before? And so that just made me think, you know, I need the feedback more regularly. So I think we had monthly meetings. I would end the meeting saying, okay, what else do you have? Do you have any other issues? You know, whatever. Let's talk about it now because I don't want it to be (laughs) what it was that one day that she just rambled on all these different things that were, you know, upsetting to her. I'm like, I could have fixed those things easily if you just told me. The other thing is being open and having fun. I've had a couple of managers that we've been able to like joke. I had this one boss that would go on and on and on at meetings. So I found this little cone, like it was just in public works, a little cone, like a traffic cone that had a light and I would push the button. And as soon as he would get off topic, I pushed the button and I just slid it across the table and he just stopped mid-sentence. He says, what's that? Oh, it's just a friendly reminder that to get back on topic. <laughs> so the people in the room were laughing. <laughs> it's really funny. And he's a really, you know, has a great sense of humor. The cone went from this little cone to the cone that was about this size. <laughs> And then when that didn't work, I started, I just said, tone, tone. (laughs) So, I mean, it was like the running joke. Everyone had fun with that. And then my, my current boss, like we always joke that his car is his camel. And so I've made like funny cards, like birthday card or just a get well card with him, like sitting on a camel and just being able to like send that, you know, and just funny, but to have a boss that has that sense of humor, I think is really important. And I really like that point about the feedback because basically you took a quote unquote, not so great situation and you learned from it and you made some changes permanently, you know, in the future. And I think that that's an important part of anyone's career, really in life in general, is when you run into something that's a negative. In this case, first of all, you had a problem on a project that went wrong, that spurred the conversation with your manager. Then that conversation resulted in learning about other things she wasn't happy about. You realize that this could be easily corrected by just giving me more feedback, but then you took it a step further and on the regular meetings going forward, you can ask him for feedback. And so that's a really good point for those of you out there that if you have a situation with your manager that you didn't like it, then change it next time. Figure out how you could change it going forward and make it a learning experience. And I think that that's really important. So we got one last question here for you, Elia, the civil engineering career elevator advice question. You get into an elevator with a civil engineer you only have 30 to 40 seconds to give him or her advice. You can't give them 15 books. You have to give them advice in 30, 40 seconds. What would you tell him or her? 
If it's a person in college, go and do a study abroad trip. I don't care what country it's in, but somewhere, go somewhere outside of the U.S. and study for a minimum of summer if you can do it. Try and do a whole semester. And even if it pushes your graduation date a little bit out, there's so much you can gain from getting that experience. And it may not even be with your subject. Maybe it's just the language that you're going to learn, but definitely to do a study abroad. And then also take that FE exam before graduating college, because once you graduate, it's a lot harder to take that type of exam with all those different subjects when you're not in that mode of school. If there's a professional, I would say definitely say your PE license is without a doubt the most critical thing you can do for your career. Even if you don't really have plans to use it, get it because it's something that it's easy to keep up and you can just, once you have it, you know, you keep it up with a small amount of educational stuff. It's no big deal to keep it up. So definitely go, go for that PE and then never stop learning, read listen to audible books, listen to podcasts, whatever the case is, but never stop learning. For personal, I would say travel. I mean, to me, we are like travel fanatics. We love travel, but there's so much you can learn and gain from traveling and getting different perspectives, learning about different cultures. And keep a vacation account. If there's a reason why you're not going because you don't have money, well, put some money aside, make it a vacation account so that you can actually use that money or your travel. I've been doing that since I was 18 years old, having a vacation account. So I've always had money for travel and that helps for those spur of the moment things that might pop up that sound really adventurous and exciting. Well, not, you have the money in the bank, so go do it. Ilya Twig, Consor Engineers, thank you so much for spending some time with us on the Civil Engineering Podcast. It was a lot of great information that I know are really going to help our listeners. So thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Elia as much as I did. I mean, she really poured out a lot of valuable information for our listeners who maybe want to get into the public sector, maybe you want to get into the private sector, maybe you want to do both, right, throughout your career, try different things. She really, really just took the time to give us a lot of information. And again, what she said about management skills and how you kind of have to learn them on the job sometimes, it's really true. And I hope that you get a good blend of kind of practicing those skills on the job and some training and coaching that could potentially help you to become a great manager like she is. Please remember you can find the show notes for this episode at civilengineeringpodcast.com. Look for episode number 184. There you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episodes, as well as links to any of our resources, websites, or books that we mentioned during the episode. We'll also remind you that there's information on our training courses for engineering organizations at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. We've got our Engineering Leadership Accelerator People Skills course, Level 1 and Level 2. We also have our Project Management Accelerator, our PM Skills training. Again, you could find them at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org or give us a call at 800-920-4007. Until next time, I wish you the best in all of your civil engineering career endeavors. The Civil Engineering Podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network. The opinions on the show are those of the hosts and guests, not their employers. For information on EMI's people and project management skills training programs for civil engineering professionals, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.